0: Welcome to Learn From Others, where we help others succeed by sharing success. I'm very excited to introduce our special guest, John Corcoran. John, thank you for taking us on your career journey.
1: Thanks, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Hey, before we find out what you're doing
1: today, let's start at the very
0: beginning. And please tell
1: us, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, man. What didn't I want to be when I grew up? You know, (laughs) I'm one of those kids who went through so many different things. I took animation classes. I wanted to be... This is before computer animation. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. I was interested in that. I was interested in architecture. I was mostly interested in the more creative types of pursuits. Um, I was interested in being a writer, which I have been throughout my career. So that stuck. So, yeah, I mean, a number of different things. I was very interested, still am interested in rockets and space travel, although I never really got into science or anything like that, so I don't have much of a chance of getting to space unless I'm buying a ticket on one of SpaceX's uh, rockets or Richard Branson's (laughs) rockets. But yeah, I mean I – honestly, probably – other than the writing aspect because I've written in all of my positions – um, and in all my job functions, I don't know that there was anything that I, you know, that I wanted to be as a kid that I became as an adult, you know, and I think that's okay. Things, things are fluid and you develop new interests. It always happens. That's funny. Cause I feel like
0: I have too many interests and that becomes, you know, you can freeze somewhat, you know, it can that's be paralyzing. True. Yeah, you know? that's
1: true also. Yeah. But I mean, I've, I guess I've tried to find other ways to explore those interests.
0: Well, what was your first job, your first real job where you got a paycheck?
1: Man, I was just talking to my kids about that this weekend. Um, this is gonna date me a bit, but uh, I worked at as I worked a bunch of jobs in in high school. Um, I worked at a summer camp one summer, and I made, I think it was $13 a day. It was like a per <laughs> diem for some reason. That wasn't minimum wage. It was way below it even at the time. It was like, a for some reason, we were like 14 years old, and they could get away with paying us that little amount. I'm not sure how it didn't <laughs> violate labor laws. And I, I worked at a Christmas tree lot one Christmas season, which was miserable. It was horrible. Like I was lifting these big heavy trees onto the roofs of people's mercedes and scratching up the top of their mercedes you know (laughs) later in high school i i did delivery for a barbecue ribs restaurant and i didn't eat ribs. I don't to this day, which was kind of weird. And then I also waited tables, which I think everyone should do in their life. And I also was a cashier behind uh, the counter there at that uh, ribs restaurant. So yeah, I've done a bit of everything.
0: This is so funny because we have a little bit of a parallel path. I uh, I was into drawing and I actually majored in architecture for about a year and a half. I My first job was working at a Christmas tree shop or Christmas tree lot.
1: Yeah, cool. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny. I mean, I joined my high school newspaper My dad was in journalism his entire career and TV news and newspapers and stuff like that. So I joined my high school newspaper, but I wanted to be the cartoonist. I was interested in political cartoons and caricatures at the time, again, illustration, drawing. And then there was one other artist who joined the the staff, and it was a small staff, like 15 people or something, and he was much better at me than, than I was at drawing. And so I was like, "Well, forget this." So I started writing, and I ended up becoming editor my senior year of the of the newspaper, and going more in a, a drawing and more in a more in a writing path, um, which is cool because I, I it was another outlet for creative expression.
0: Right. Well, that's too bad you got you know some competition in there, but it sounds like you made a, made your way through it.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes you got to be honest with yourself and be like, okay is this the thing that I have that is an unfair advantage, you know, or is this the thing that I can be better than everyone else at? If not the best in the world, certainly, you know, is this something that I could maybe with with a a number of years of – Practice and honing that I can not just love, but I can also be really good at it and people will want to pay me for, you know, because actually a lot of times, frankly, people pursue something that challenges them, but it's not something that others want to pay them for because they're, they're not, they're not so good at it that everyone's beating a path to their door to pay them to do it, whether it's in, in, you know, as an employee or as an, o- an entrepreneur.
0: Right. No, that's a great point. You think you're doing a great job. You love it. But if you don't really have the total skills and talent, you know, you might be a climbing, you know, uphill battle trying to win yeah. that war. Yeah. Well, what do you do today? And if you would kind of walk us through how you got there, and I know we're talking a little bit more about a pass role, but sure. uh, if you would, yeah, just kind of talk about what you, sure, how you were able to uh, to do that.
1: Yeah, it's a roundabout way of getting here, which I'm sure we'll get to. But today, I'm, I like to say I'm a recovering lawyer. So I went to law school and I practiced law for a number of years. I basically, uh, you know, saw that the the legal profession was not something that I was really passionate about. wasn't crazy about it. I wanted to write a book originally. And everyone said, well, if you want to write a book, you've got to start a blog because that's how you build an audience. So I did that, and then I went down this whole rabbit hole. And eventually through my own podcast and my own blog, ended up replacing my income through that. And then in a roundabout way, uh, my business partner, Jeremy Weiss, and I uh, partnered up. We started doing live events together. And essentially what we do now is we connect uh, business owners to their ideal prospects. So every business needs customers. Every business needs clients. And they can get them either directly or they can get them through referral partners. And so we help them to make that connection. And we do it uh, by doing it for them. Uh, or doing it hand-in-hand with them through a variety of different strategies, using things like LinkedIn and using things like a podcast. That's essentially what we do now.
0: Well, if you could, would you talk about your
1: previous role that some of our students may want to know a little bit more about? Sure, yeah. So uh, probably the most interesting thing about me was not long after I went to co- after I got out of college, I actually went to a school that would <laughs> be described as a party school, and I ba- graduated with a B.A. in English, and I actually became a writer in presidential letters and messages at the White House during the uh, presidency of uh, Bill Clinton back in the uh, in the 90s, in early 2000. It was an amazing opportunity. I had interned in the White House speechwriting office, kept in touch with a bunch of speechwriters there, and was interested in coming back and ended up coming back and working there for a couple of years. And it's amazing to be 23 years old and to be writing things that is in the president's voice. And I even wrote. You know, proclamations, which not many people read these days, but they're historic documents that date back even to George Washington. So literally, like, I sat down at my desk and my computer and was writing out documents that I knew that 200, 250 years ago, George Washington or John Adams or, you know, Abraham Lincoln were probably writing with a quill pen under, you (laughs) know… a uh, lamplight in in the White House. So it was a pretty amazing opportunity and um, a real privilege to be able to do it. Now
0: walk well, us how you were able to get that job. So it sounds like you went to college and in college you had an opportunity to intern at the White House. Is that correct?
1: Right, exactly. So my school, my college, uh, my university had an internship program um not every school not every university does so sometimes you got to seek them out but there are others that exist and that you can participate in and basically for a semester I went and lived in Washington DC lived and worked in Washington DC and got academic credit for it in the fall of 1997 which there was a, a bit of a scandal in the late 90s um called the Monica Lewinsky scandal which we don't need to get into the details of but it was right before that happened I was there for about four months working in the speechwriting office. The speechwriters, you know, had us do research projects, had us uh, help with some editing of speeches, writing small sections here and there. I had, you know, portions of things that I wrote that the president ended up saying, and I was 22, 21 years old, you know, um, at the time, so pretty young at the time. You know, and then the way that I got the job afterwards was I went back, graduated from college because I hadn't graduated yet, and I kept in touch with all the other speechwriters. I'm a huge advocate of... um, Relationships are your number one asset, and our academic system is heavily weighted towards um, focusing on academics, and that's, that's great, but there's another huge piece of it, and that is connecting with the right people, building relationships with the right people in a sincere way. And that's – unfortunately, we don't teach enough of that in school. And so that's a lot of what I focused on through my blog, Smart Business Revolution, through my podcast. And that's essentially what I did is I, I kept in touch with the speechwriters. I continued, continued to uh, deliver value to them by sending you know quotes from time to time and sending them different uh, poems and things that, that they could use in different speeches – and by keeping in touch that way remaining top of mind, when an opportunity came along, they, they thought of me, they told me about it, and it ended up leading to um, a job for me.
0: And did you go to the college knowing
1: they had the internship, or did that happen once you got to college? No, I hadn't planned it that way. I'd started to get more and more interested in politics um, in high school. I hadn't done much with it, though. I I didn't volunteer for any political campaigns in high school or anything like that. It wasn't until I got to college that I got more interested in it, and that's when I I heard about I actually was interested in going abroad, and I didn't exactly have the grades for it. My (laughs) grades weren't that great, and and you had to – I mean they were okay, but I I had to have a pretty high GPA in order to qualify for my school's study abroad program for certain countries. And I Mm -hmm. wanted to go to a Spanish-speaking country for a year. For whatever reason, that was just, I mean, you know, I just, that was what I wanted to do and I wasn't really all that flexible on it. So I, I probably could have gone to another country, but I didn't. And when I didn't qualify to go study abroad, I was like, well, I still want to do something else. And I found this program to to live and work in washington d c and so I jumped on it
0: now How long were you a speechwriter? I was there for a little under two years okay, and what prompted you to transition into something else? after I left
1: the White House, I actually went and I was a speechwriter for the governor of california i'm I'm from California I live in California now and then and um, wanted to come back to California, so I ended up working as a speechwriter for the governor there. What prompted me, partially involuntary, but I wanted to go back to school. I, you know, at the White House and in the governor's office, I worked with lots of lawyers and also people who'd been to law school but who weren't practicing lawyers. And they tended to be the ones who won arguments. We'd be in, you know, these group meetings and stuff, and I would lose arguments to the ones who were lawyers. And I was like, hmm, okay, well maybe I should <laughs> go to law school. So I was kind of on that trajectory and. I was. This was around 2003. I was working for then-governor Gray Davis, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was an action movie star at the time, decided to hop in the race, decided to run for governor. He became the governor, and my candidate lost, and so I was out of a job, and um, shortly after that, I ended up going to law school. So it was partially involuntary. But you know what? That's a great lesson, too. You know what? That's life. Like You're going to have some successes. You're going to have some letdowns. So, you know, I mean, I went from working at the White House to, you know— unceremoniously being swept out with all of my colleagues out of a job and uh needing to get a new job and the lesson of that actually is the same thing because um many of my colleagues went without a job for like up to six months because they didn't have the right connections i fortunately had a good connection who basically got me a new job right afterwards so i wasn't out of work for very long i went straight into another job right after that
0: you should know everybody loses to arnold
1: Right. Everybody loses to Arnold.
0: Yeah, <laughs> what we did too. So I have to ask: Do you have any interesting or funny stories from the Clinton White House that you could share?
1: Yeah, I don't know how interesting these will be for your listeners since it's before their time. Um, but <laughs> a, a couple of things. So one is there was a, before I left the White House. At the time, they would record these record these radio addresses in the Oval Office. I don't know how they handle it now, but. Basically, it was the president would come in on a Saturday, or Sunday morning, and you rec- record this radio address, uh, sitting at the desk the, the, in the Oval Office, and they would invite a very small group of people to come down and see it, and we're talking like members of Congress, governors. It's in the Oval Office, so it's not a big room, so it can't fit that many people, and also departing staff, and so. I was leaving, and I hadn't had the opportunity to do it yet. Usually people do it right before they leave. And so we find out last minute that I'm able to do it, and I can bring my family. So my family flies out with me, comes out to Washington, D.C., from California, just for this, because it's a great opportunity, right? Right. And we go down, and we brought with us gifts. And this is a great lesson also. We brought with us gifts for the president, who at the time was building up a movie collection. He was a big fan of old western movies so we brought a couple of dvds uh which was the hot format at the times before digital again (laughs) you gotta explain all these things right right right. and um you know people actually collected movies on disc and um so we we wrapped them up we put a bow on it and, and we get up there and then he records it and then there's like you know 50 people in line and it's like boom 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 you're like going through and getting a picture really quickly in front of the desk we go through we get up to him we hand over these dvds and he looks down And then we had about a five-minute conversation with him about old Western movies. And my dad actually was a movie critic when I was a kid, and so he could talk about movies with anyone. And we ended up having this great conversation about old Western movies and everything. And the lesson in that is that, one, when you give to other people, no matter the stature, if it's... Poignant, if it's meaningful to them, it doesn't matter the stature of the person you're giving to. Mm-hmm. They're gonna appreciate it, you know. And he took the time, you know. When you're president of the United States, you can get anything, right? right? right. <laughs> you snap your fingers, anyone's gonna bring it to you. But just the thoughtfulness of that gesture caused him to stop everything. And we had governors, we had members of Congress who were behind us in line, going, "Why is he talking to those people?" You know, <laughs> they weren't sure why, and it was because. Of that, And the other lesson behind that is, you know, a lot of times, especially, you know, in high school, junior high, college, you're intimidated by connecting with higher level people. And you often think, what could I possibly add a value to that person? Well, if you're thoughtful, you think it through, if you find an opportunity, a way to be relevant to that person, it doesn't matter their stature, it doesn't matter how successful they are, you can find a way to connect with them and often connecting on a human level, not a, a vocation level. So in other words, Having a conversation about something that normal humans would, regardless of stature or difference in stature, Mm -hmm. often is a great way to connect with people. But you might appreciate the lesson behind that.
0: No, that's great. And as a reminder, you can check out all previous episodes at learnfromothers.org. If you are an educator or a student, you can search for podcasts by career clusters and additional resources are under the resource tab. So we just learned what you wanted to be when you grew up, which was a lot of different things, including <laughs> including writing and what you actually ended up doing, which was writing for the White House and the Governor's Office of California. So if you could do it all over again, and let's let's just keep it to that function, uh, what would you do differently?
1: What would I do differently? I think I probably would have explored these interests earlier. In, in retrospect, I can see why I didn't, because I was exploring many other interests. I mean, when you're in high school, it's not like you have extra time. A lot of times, you know, you're busy with studies. And, you know, I was on the football team and I was editor... My senior year, I was on the football team and I was editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper, plus academics. And I also worked a job as well. So, you know, you have a lot of things on your plate. But, you know, in retrospect, I think I would have explored these interests earlier and and worked to make connections in the field earlier.
0: Right. So it goes back to the networking piece and just exploring some more, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right.
0: Well, let's make the assumption that someone in our audience wants to be a political speechwriter. What advice would you give them?
1: It's a tough world right now, especially in Washington, D.C. It's a very cutthroat business and it's very bitterly divided uh, right now. It won't always be the case like that, though. So, Um, No matter what side of the aisle you're on, I wouldn't get discouraged or dismayed by the lack of decorum, the lack of cooperation that's been happening in, in recent years. A lot of that is by design, and it's amazing the founders who created our country over 200 years ago, the lasting nature of our democracy. I would say if you're interested, read as much as you can, study as much as you can on the topic. And see if you can reach out and connect with some people who've worked locally in some of the professions because there's amazing similarities. If you want to be a speechwriter for the president of the United States, start by writing a speech for your mayor, your local mayor or city council member or something like that. And start by volunteering. You know, some of the best opportunities that came and I realize not everyone can do this, it's unfortunate, but some of the best opportunities that came to me came from working for free or volunteering. Right. It just gets you a, a foot in the door. So if you can do that um, even if it's not a lot of hours a week or a month, see if you can get in the door that way.
0: That speaks to the networking piece, building relationships, providing value to others.
1: Yeah, and use what the networks that you use the connections that you have already. So your parents, you know, use um, neighbors, use your friends' parents. Let everyone know what you're interested in. You know, because a lot of times people don't know what you're interested in. They don't know, and they've got enough stuff going on in their in their lives. So you got to tell people what you're interested in in order for people to be able to help you. Fundamentally, I think people want to help, especially younger generation, um, if you seem motivated and passionate about it. So, you know, take some time to tell people and they, you know, might. you never know. They might know someone that would be a great connection for you.
0: Well, are there any current projects you're working on that you would like to share?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm as engaged and excited about what I'm doing now as I was back then. Believe it or not, when you're 23 years old and you're writing um, short, uh, speeches and scripts and things like that. Like any medium, sometimes it it can get a little tiresome, you know, because the medium can be limiting. You know, that's what drew me to go to law school. That drew me for to go on and and find other challenges. Um, today, we work with some great clients, interesting entrepreneurs, and help to connect them to the people who ex- who light them up, the people who excite them, and that is incredibly gratifying. You know, the funny thing is, I, you know, I worked in the White House and for the last many years now, I volunteered without pay from a local board in my town of 9,000 people. And in many ways, I get, you know, more satisfaction, equal satisfaction from that function as I did working at the highest level of government. And this is like the lowest level of government, (laughs) right? right? So find what it is excites you. Find what is passionate, what makes you passion. Uh, It makes you passionate, makes you excited and pursue that and do it for your own reasons. Do it because it lights you up because there's always external pressures from family, you know, peers, that sort of thing. And I've seen a lot of people who go 10, 20 years pursuing something and that they're not passionate about. And that's really sad to see. So that would be my advice on that.
0: Fantastic advice. That's really great. Because if you're doing something you enjoy, you never have a day at work. You're always doing something right. that you really enjoy.
1: And of course, I mean, it goes back to what we said at the beginning, which was don't just follow something that you're passionate about. You know, it should also be something that others want from you. You know, and a great question for you to ask is ask peers, friends, colleagues, you know, friends, parents, what do they think of when they think of you? And ask them to be brutally honest, you know? (laughs) I mean, if you're in high school, you're junior high, it might be baseball, it might be basketball, whatever, it might be hanging out, you know? But as you get older, that's a great question to ask people because you might find that people think of you for something different than what you think of yourself for. And you need to balance what you're passionate about with... Also, what other people want from you, what others see you as an expert in, because it might be, it often is something that you just take for granted because it comes rather easy to you. Mm-hmm. If it comes easy to you, you might feel like, oh, yeah, this there's no big deal, right? Whereas for others, it's very challenging. And there's a, there's a zillion different examples I'm sure we could give for that, right? From, you know, basketball to drawing to writing to mathematics, whatever, you know? Oftentimes, if something comes naturally to you, you still enjoy it, but it's very challenging for others, but you diminish it. You you minimize it because you don't realize that it is something that others really value. So that's a great question for you to always be asking people. What do they think of for you? What What do they consider you to be an expert in? And it'll help guide your path going forward.
0: That's really great advice. That makes me want to ask people around me. (laughs) So, no, that's great. Well, we talked about before, I'm a big car enthusiast. And uh, could you
1: tell us what was your first car? I love that question. My first car, unfortunately, or fortunately, (laughs) 1982 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme T-Top. My parents had it. They bought it new in 1982. They drove it for a number of years, and then when I was nearing driving age, actually, when I was 12, they, just, they bought a new car, and they decided rather than turning it in as a trade-in, they would hold on to it for me. So they garaged it for four years. I don't oh, know what they were thinking. Wow. They drove it once a week. They would like start it just start the engine once a week. Held on to it for four years. I drove it for four months and was rear-ended and was totaled. (laughs) (laughs) After four years? Wow, that's crazy. And I was giving a lift to some other people in my class who I wasn't even that close friends with. Yeah, so anyway, so that car didn't last too long, and it also didn't work very well. It used (laughs) to—this was embarrassing—it used to always stall as I was pulling into my high school parking lot. Oh, no. (laughs) So I'd be driving into my high school parking lot. And it was – I kind of went to an affluent high school where kids had really nice cars. I did not. I had this dumpy old beat-up car that my parents had garaged for four years. (laughs) And I'd pull into the parking lot, and it'd be like, dunk. (laughs) And then I'd have to, like, try and either, like, start it again – As I was driving past my classmates and peers who were walking to class looking at me like, oh, look at that guy. His car just stalled. (laughs) At least it had T-tops. I'm going to have to Google
0: that. I I can't picture that car.
1: Uh, That's probably for good reason. (laughs) And then immediately after that, I turned it in. I got a 1984 Honda Accord four-door with a moonroof that all my friends proceeded to Uh, it had like one hole in the liner, uh, like above your head, you Mm -hmm. know, Yep. and they, every time they got in, they would stick a finger in there and rip it down a little bit further. And by uh, within a couple of months, the entire liner was like ripped down and in shreds and you'd get like this stuff that would fall on you as you're driving in the car. Anyways, it was good times. And that car would last forever. I bet. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I got a lot of motivation from driving crappy cars in high school. And so I actually think that there's a really good, it serves a good purpose. I see a lot of people when they're handed a really nice car and they haven't really earned it, no. They don't, you know? Yeah, they They don't take care of it.
0: They don't value it. They
1: don't take care of it. They don't appreciate it. Not just that. They don't appreciate a lot of things in life. They kind of expect things to be handed to them. Yeah. Not obviously that doesn't apply to everyone, but I saw a lot of that. So I think driving a crappy car and then having that as a motivator throughout life is a really good thing.
0: I actually did a little animation of all the crappy cars I've driven over the years. So it is a big influencer.
1: Oh, (laughs) that's cool. Yeah. Well, what's your dream car? So I'm a huge fan of Tesla. Mm-hmm. Um I actually uh, I, li- I live out here near Silicon Valley. I followed in, in the late 2000s when it was there was kind of a race between all the different electric car companies that were competing at the time and Tesla I knew at the time was just kind of heads and in- their their approach was just much better than the rest. So I actually met Elon Musk a number of years ago, I attended uh, some early parties that Tesla put on, and oh, that's saw cool. I rode in the one of the, I wrote in the prototype Model S. Wow! At the party where it was unveiled in Northern California, I'm just a huge fan of that company. Anything Tesla drives, I don't still I still don't own one. All my money I've uh, that I would have that I would put into a car, I put into shares in the company because I I believe in its mission to shift us towards sustainable transportation. I think in 15, 20 years, we're all going to be driving electric cars. No question. You know, I've chosen to put my money behind the mission of the company um, rather than the the car. But I will drive one eventually.
0: Oh, that's cool. Well, one great perk to some jobs is a company car. So if I had all the money in the world, I'd buy you a cool company car based on your job. And I'm going... The job I picked was White House speechwriter. Okay. Okay. Cool. It's not a Tesla. Is
1: that a limousine, maybe. Or something <laughs> like that?
0: Well, you know, it is a Cadillac. I think they call it the Beast. The Beast, the big Cadillac, armored. So I did pick a Cadillac, American-made Cadillac. But I got you a cool Cadillac. So I decided to pick for you. It's a four-door, but it's the uh, Hennessy supercharged uh 19 i'm sorry 2018 cadillac vts so this thing is a monster it's got like a thousand horsepower i'll send you a link with a picture and it's really wicked looking so i figured you'd still need you know four doors for you know some folks at the white house but it's almost as fast as the tesla zero to 60 in 2.9 seconds i think the tesla model s is somewhere close to that so it's not a Tesla, but Uh, it's just as quick and just as cool
1: yeah like the classic american made that's really cool yeah yeah i figured i had to be
0: either a cadillac or i think they had some lincolns and lincoln's not really building anything cool right now so i went with the cadillac
1: (laughs) thank you i love that yeah. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, uh, American. We were talking beforehand. My dad had a 65 Mustang. He had a 69 Corvette. I was a big fan of the, um, early sixties Corvettes. We went to car shows as a kid. I used to subscribe to DuPont registry, this car, you know, car magazine. Um, yeah. So I'm, I love, uh, I love classic automobiles. That's awesome. Well, cool. Well, thanks
0: so much for taking us on your journey today, John. What's the best way our listeners can learn more about you and your company?
1: Well, probably most relevant for all of them is to check out my blog and my podcast. SmartBusinessRevolution.com is the blog and uh, Smart Business Revolution is the podcast. And I interview interesting entrepreneurs and ask them what relationships got them where they are today. And you, you know, if you're on LinkedIn, you can connect with me on LinkedIn there as well. I share a lot of content on there as well. Thanks so much, John, for your time. Thanks so much, Greg.
0: Thank you for listening to learn from others where we help others succeed by sharing success where will our next adventure take us subscribe to find out if you know of someone who has a cool career story or occupation contact greg through instagram at gregstanleylfo. lfo that's g-r-e-g-s-t-a-n-l-e-y l-f-o and we will see you soon as we learn from others together